Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with freelance journalist and scholar Nathan Schneider about his book, God in Proof, the story of a search from the ancients to the internet, published by the University of California Press in 2013. Nathan Schneider's monograph explores the timeless challenge of how to explain God, Are such explanations rational? Why are some attempts more popular than others? Indeed, can one really prove God? Isn't it called faith for a reason? And what does Star Trek have to do with all of this? In addressing these questions and many more, Schneider guides the reader through a rich land of storytelling, autobiographical reflections, and clever drawings. As the author submits in the book from its onset, don't expect to discover which proof is right or why atheists are wrong. It turns out, in any case, that proof doesn't mean what we think it means. Although proof can mean unimpeachable evidence, a proof can also be a work in progress, like the proof of a text. Or it can mean to tackle a challenge, as in to prove oneself. As Schneider convincingly argues, moreover, proofs for God have scarcely focused on mitigating doubt. They have been works of devotion and profoundly personal revelations. These proofs have also remained tied intimately to particular socio-historical contexts. But Schneider points out that despite this, the world of proofs is also a world of relationships and shared ideas in which Muslims, Jews, Christians, philosophers, and many others draw upon the ideas of one another. Schneider's combined background in journalism and academia helps in rendering his complex and sometimes mind-boggling subject digestible to general and scholarly audiences alike with polyvalent interests and ranges of beliefs about God. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Nathan Schneider. Hi, Nathan. It's great to be talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's my pleasure. So, could you start off by telling us how you got interested in this topic of proofs and God? Well, it's something that kind of came upon me uh, gradually, in both uh, from a personal direction and also from a more academic one. Uh, you know, I was, uh, on the one hand, trying to deal with this conversion to, um, to Catholicism, to Christianity, that I had experienced as a teenager when I was 18, 17 um, uh, but then also, uh, in the process, uh, and especially as a, uh, student in, in, uh, uh, religious studies, um, I started to think about many other dimensions to that question and to this idea, to, to, to the very, uh, desire of certainty, the desire for certainty that I sought, uh, uh, through that personal quest. And it started to seem a lot more interesting and a lot more complex than I had initially thought. So you have an interesting trajectory in terms of 
your career as a, an author and academic and journalist. Could you tell us a little bit about your, how you transitioned into the academy and religious studies and then out of the academy into journalism and how, to, how you sort of see yourself fitting in in terms of your intellectual fabric? Well, I, um, you know, as I said, I, I came into uh, uh, college, you know, as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old who, with a kind of personal uh, uh, quest going on, you know, a personal deep concern about, about my own religious identity. And that made me uh, curious about other people's religious identities and, and how they, you know, articulated their place um, in religious terms. And, and so uh, over the course of uh, college at Brown University, I, uh, I fell into the religious studies department and really fell in love with the discourse I found there. Um, one of the things that was so rich was that uh, it became less about just my own quest uh, than about uh, opening up much broader questions uh, about uh, religious traditions and about human nature in general. And, um, it, you know, that kind of helped me stop thinking quite so much about about what I was going through um, and, and broaden it. And then, and that continued. I, I, I loved that work so much that I went straight to graduate school um, in, in California at UC Santa Barbara, which was a, a wonderful department. Um, but uh, after a couple of years there, I realized that, um, that, uh, that I wasn't able to do quite the work that I uh, felt called to be doing. And so I moved to New York and started working as a journalist and, and very much bringing that training in religious studies to bear uh, on magazine and, and, and book writing. Um, and uh, I've been very grateful for that kind of odd combination of, of uh, academic training and then also uh, engagement with, um, with religion in, in uh, public discourse. Yeah, and I, I think very clearly that that background that you have shows up clearly in your book, and you have autobiographical components, and you write, you draw sketches, you use contractions, as so many people might be uh, disgruntled to, to learn. And so bringing all these different parts of your background into the fore, who, who is your audience for this book? What what type of person do you envision reading this, and how are they going to understand it? In some ways, I uh, hope that it will be. Uh, uh, I, in some ways, I wrote it for myself when I was uh, when I was first undergoing that uh, uh, that conversion experience. When I was craving some kind of certainty, and that word "proof" um, had such a hold over me. Uh, that I, I was in the midst of a transition and, and I just wanted something firm and clear. Uh, and, um, you know, at the same time, I was curious and, and, and wanted a real understanding of something um, and, and, and needed a kind of map uh, about how I might go about, you know, thinking about these questions. And I, and I wrote the book uh, a few years later, hoping that it would be useful to someone in, in that position uh, that I had been in. And, um, uh, it, you know, that, that for somebody who has some reason to be interested in these issues, interested in the intersection of faith and reason, um, that this would be a guidebook, but that it would also um, lend a sense of humility, uh, because so much of what uh, I, I, the book looks at is not just the ideas and the pure reason and that, and that search for purity, but the, the bodies and the histories and the people 
the lives, the biographies. Um, and, and what I found the more I looked at these ideas uh, was that uh, they really were uh, so uh, inextricably intertwined with, um, uh, with with things that are less pure, so to speak. Uh, uh, again, lives, histories, autobiographies, experience. And I'd like to come back to this idea of how the book has been received. And I know you've had the chance to speak about the book in a number of different public fora. Uh, but be- before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about the story behind the title of the book and also what this word proof means? One of the things you talk about early on in the book is how when the average English speaker thinks of proof, that's not it's not necessarily taking into account the history of the word or its etymology. Yeah, you know, some people kind of uh, are taken aback by that word when I use it um, and when they see it in the title of the book, for instance. But to me, it is just really the perfect word for what I'm trying to get at. First of all, when I started this journey myself, you know, when I was a teenager, that word just took hold of me. So I had to use it. Um, it, 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 at that time, represented uh, this sense of clarity, the sense of, of perfect conviction that one might have about something that was still, um, you know, and continues to be and, you know, will always be kind of confusing and messy. Um, you know, we think of proof as being, you know, mathematical uh, 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 and perfect and precise and complete. Um, but but what's interesting when you look at the ways, ways this word and its and its precursors have been used in English um, and, in, uh, and in other languages as well, it really has another side to it. There's also that side in which, which we still use sometimes when we talk about proving oneself um, or when we talk about uh, a proof as a, as a kind of exercise and experiment, like a printer's proof, you know, which is really a test run, that actually um, this word isn't just that kind of static mathematical um, demonstration, but also a process of experience, a discovery, a journey. Um, and, and there are many uh, uh, ways in which uh, the word was used that way um, before it became much more taken over by this more mathematical approach. Um, and, and I think that story of the word uh, is in some ways um, the story of the book. You know, is, is, this, is, is it asked the question, um, why have we come to think about proofs, religious proofs, the way we do now? And are there other ways that we might have thought of them? And, and it was so striking to recognize that, that um, these so-called proofs are, um, have had many different uses over the course of their history, um, often very different from the uses we imagine for them today. Yeah, and I think that is a very provocative way to start out the book and make, make some really good points. And Part of the way that you've written the book makes it very engaging in a way that a lot of perhaps quote unquote academic books can't be or aren't trying to be. And one of the ways you do that is through telling anecdotes about your your personal history. And one of the things you mentioned that has some impact on you is your experience at a certain monastery in Virginia. Could you tell us a little bit about that monastery and how it helped frame thinking about your book topic? Sure. Well, before that conversion experience, um, uh, I, on the suggestion of my mother, I, I went to a monastery that was not far from our house in Virginia. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of made it a school project. Um, I got a little credit for it. 
um, as a kind of uh, final senior pro- project in high school. Um, uh, but And I couldn't exactly say why I was so interested in going to this place, um, but it just fascinated me. Uh, on the one hand, the kind of, the kind of um, utopian community that, that was created there. On the other hand, the sense of the sense of foreignness, the sense of uh, this place where people were living out a faith that was strange but alluring to me. Um, and, and over the course of my time there, I just fell in love with that world, but I still couldn't really wrap my head around um, whether I could ever be a part of that faith, whether, I, whether that could ever really take hold in me. And um, one thing that was particularly important, important was one of the monks... Um, you know, when, when I was when I was complaining about all of this doubt and confusion, um, just kind of laid it bare to me that that this doubt and confusion is part of a life of faith, um, and and suddenly it became accessible to me. Um, uh, you know, not through some kind of proof, not through some sort of perfect conviction, uh, but in recognizing that this uh, and that what they were practicing was a journey. Uh, and uh, a series of experiences and questions and struggles. And you also mentioned something somewhat ironic talking about monasteries. You mentioned how monasteries and philosophy don't often go together and that people like Anselm were exceptions. Could you say something more about that, of why monasteries and philosophy don't usually go together or haven't historically? Yeah, I think in some ways it's just... um, you know, a matter of the cultures that formed in different communities, but but monasteries tended to be places where people cultivated experience um, rather than pure uh, intellect, uh, as was done in the more secular schools and among the preachers and so forth uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, but monasteries had their own kind of philosophy, um, and it was one in which in which proofs were just kind of were often less relevant, um, and and. And actually, you see that even in uh, the famous proof of Anselm of Canterbury, who was a Benedictine monk uh, and who developed a very famous uh, uh, argument for the existence of God. But even that argument is grounded in experience. Um, It's grounded in, even in the way he presents it, he's describing an experience he had in which this argument came to him. Um, And in that sense, it's very monastic, uh, very much in line with that mystical tradition um, and, and, and yet when we talk about his argument today in a philosophy class, for instance, often that experience is stripped out of it. And we just look at the logical pro- uh, propositions, um, whereas it's very clear in his presentation that he meant that experience to be part of the argument. Um, and so I think there's something to be learned from, from that particularly um, monastic way of approaching the question. Yeah, and I think it's helpful the way you discuss in the book, too, the way you were mentioning earlier how so much about the histories of proofs for the existence of God aren't aren't as sort of pure as people might want to imagine them to be, and they're full of, you know, politics and historical context and things like this. So coming back to this concept of experience, which is often so personal and idiosyncratic, what... What have the, the great thinkers had in common, especially considering they have come from different traditions? And so maybe a better way to phrase that question is, what, what do we mean when we're talking about God in terms of proof for God? Well, that's a great question. And, and in some ways, that's, 
that question of what do we mean by God is more interesting than the question of how do you prove that God or what or does God exist or not? Um, uh, and, and that question varies from from uh, thinker to think, from thinker to thinker, from proof to proof. Um, and uh, and on the one hand, so many of the people that I talk about and and and, and um, the communities are talking to each other, um, and, and that that part of it was really remarkable to me to recognize the ways in which uh, uh, Greeks and uh, uh, medieval Muslims and uh, and medieval Christians, and then, uh, uh, you know, a kind of secular Jew like Spinoza, if you could use that word secular in his case, uh, uh, to people working in philosophy departments today, uh, people in a variety of different contexts um, across cultures, uh, cultures that we, we like to imagine are hermetically sealed from each other. We're very much learning from each other and talking with each other and comparing notes um, about uh, about how to develop these proofs. And even the most minute differences um, in how, for instance, they defined God um, could make all the difference. You know, uh, when Spinoza, who I mentioned earlier, uh, adopted Anselm's, the kind of outline of Anselm's argument a few centuries later, um, there were a few little tweaks that made the same general argument go from an argument for the Christian God to an argument that looks very much like uh, contemporary uh, uh, naturalism uh, uh, without need for a kind of traditional version of God. Um, so, so, so it's really interesting when you look at those in comparison, see how they're talking to each other, how these thinkers are responding to each other, and how they're very consciously making these minute changes that, um, that have terrific consequences. Are there are there particular thinkers that you looked at? And you've mentioned Spinoza and Anselm, so those could be them. But are there any thinkers that you looked at that just stand out for you as having a particularly compelling story or a strange story or what have you? Well, certainly that that story of the of the journey of the of the ontological argument, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, in part being framed by uh, Muslim thinkers in the Middle Ages, and then Anselm, and then being uh, adopted through uh, Descartes and and, um, uh, and and Spinoza, and then into the modern world with, with someone like the novelist Iris Murdoch. You know, and it, when you look at the, the, uh, the, the argument historically, it in itself becomes a kind of character. Um, and so on the one hand, I was trying to look at the people uh, in this book, but I was also... Uh, considering the the arguments themselves as characters, and uh, you know, and one one real inspiration for me in this um, was was uh, was the work of Hegel, uh, which can be kind of um, imposing at times and, and 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 a little wacky and out there, especially in his religious ideas. Um, but for me, it was very rich because he saw the um, in, in his later life book on, on um, proofs, which was never finally completed and published. He, he died before, uh, he died actually just after signing the contract for its publication. But in that book, he describes this way in which, in which um, the proofs are uh, a, a process and in which one leads to the next and which they relate to each other. Um, and, and that none of them is quite uh, 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 self-sufficient on its own, but they actually... Uh, support and reinforce and work together, uh, and and their development over time is a story in itself. And um, 
and and that was a really real inspiration for um, for this book. It was uh, Hegel's work on the proofs was something I first encountered in graduate school, uh, actually just for a for a paper in class. And uh, and uh, over the course of the years of working on this book, I, I came to realize how central that um, that idea of Hegel's uh, uh, became in my process and in my own approach. So what do you tell people when they ask you something like, so Nathan, like, which proof is correct? Or, you know, can, can you really prove God? How do you, how do you answer questions like this? And ha- have you actually had questions like that? Oh yeah, all the time. And, and to me, uh, often the best way to respond to that kind of question is with a story. You know, we're, we're so used to thinking of proofs in a very either or black and white fashion. Uh, and that just has to do with the particular moment we're in, uh, where we imagine a world of atheists versus theists or, um, uh, you know, Christians versus Muslims or something like that. And one or the other has to win. Um, and often this, this tradition has not really been about that. Often the question of whether God exists is like the least interesting question to the very people developing these arguments. Um, uh, often what they're more interested in is something more along the lines of what do you mean by God or how would you go about a proof? Uh, and so when I get a question like that, I think, uh, sometimes the most useful thing I can do is to point back into those directions and to remind people that there are other ways of thinking about these questions that might be more interesting than, um, just kind of rehashing a debate between Richard Dawkins and, um, uh, say the evangelical philosopher William Lane Craig. So, another related to that topic, you talk about how historically people have written about how God is dead, but then he might become reborn in certain philosophical discourses. And so, this is sort of you know navigating the idea between doubt and certainty in certain regards. Can you say something about that? How how God could die and become reborn in intellectual conversations? Well, I, I think maybe what, what um, you know, the this, this story that, that comes across in, in that question in the book is, um, is the extent to which when I was studying religion uh, in, in religion, in religious studies departments, uh, it was often kind of presented to me as, um, as obvious that rational demonstrations of the existence of God had kind of failed uh, uh, one professor I remember told me Kant had pretty much done away with that uh, a few centuries ago, so so no need to bother, and that there wasn't really much going on worth taking seriously. Um, and and um, uh, and you know, and so in that sense, that kind of god of, of proof uh, was dead, and and was uh, was even dangerous in the minds, especially of many liberal um, religious believers who are uh, who who are afraid of of bringing proofs into into their faith because it just isn't that kind of God or faith that they want. Um, but then it was striking to me to, um, spend some time among, um, you know, among contemporary philosophers of religion on the, in the analytics side, uh, uh, which I hadn't been very much uh, exposed to in graduate school. Um, and, and to see that, you know, well, uh, there are limitations to what they're doing. There are actually some really interesting ideas coming out of that world and some really sophisticated work that uh, deserves to be taken seriously. Um, and so, uh, you know, this idea that that modern scientific reason is just 
steamrolling steamrolling over over um, God just doesn't seem to be playing out. In fact, there are many ways in which um, scientific ideas have have um, reignited old debates um, about faith and reason, uh, and um, and and have continued that conversation in really interesting ways. So so just when you think. Uh, the, the conversation about God might be over and trumped by something else. Uh, it always seems to reemerge in interesting uh, and surprising ways. Right. And on that note, you talk about a trip you took to Turkey and also to Jordan and how you spoke with some influential or maybe not so influential thinkers in the reason in the region and how they disagreed about the relationship between science and religion. Could you say something about those conversations you had? Well, one thing that was so striking, you know, I, I, I went in, uh, I went to the Muslim world, you know, looking at how um, uh, 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 Muslims were thinking about questions like the existence of God and uh, evolution, for instance, um, and how that compared to uh, how we think about it in the United States. And so I, I went and met with a prominent um, uh, Muslim creationist named Harun Yahya, um, or Adnan Akhtar, um, who was uh, schooled by a lot of uh, uh, American evangelical creationists and bore a lot of resemblance to them, though there are some interesting differences. Um, And so that was one thing. But uh, then a little bit later, I went to, uh, you know, a biology department at at the university um, uh, of, uh, at the University in Amman, Jordan. And um, one thing that was really surprising to me was how little interested uh, the professors there were in these debates. Um, you know, in, in American uh, science departments, you'll often find a great deal of passion around uh, questions of evolution and creationism, and they're very angry at the um, uh, intelligent design community, for instance, and there's a lot of anxiety about these issues. Um, and I just didn't find that in that department. You know, people had different perspectives, different ideas about what may or may not be true. But when I spoke to them individually, it was clear that they didn't really know what one another thought because they hadn't really been talking about it. Um, um, it just wasn't as big a deal. Uh, and that made uh, made it really clear to me that um, the, the debates about, for instance, evolution that we think are so important and so um, uh, uh, incredibly um, uh, necessary uh, in the United States here and that, and that arouse so much attention um, don't necessarily have to arouse that kind of attention or passion. And, um, and, and it made me recognize the way in which our debate is framed in historical terms and is so, became so important because of particular historical events and precedents uh, that made it so. Yeah, and you, you talk about different events of how you know, people in North America at least are obsessed with these debates about intelligent design or evolution or, you know, if we can know whether or not God is true in particular ways, and they become these big spectacles. So could you say something about why why are these big debates that get, like, millions of viewers so attractive to one sensibility, but maybe not that interesting to another sensibility? Well, on the one hand, it's a, it's a historical question, and it's bound up in our politics. Um, you know, it goes back to to uh, the, the relationship between science and religion in Victorian England, where there had been this kind of deal made between science and religion, this kind of detente. Um, uh, and then it was broken in a very particular way by, uh, by the work of Darwin 
um, that if it had been configured a little differently um, uh, before him, uh, all of this might not have been such a big deal. Uh, for instance, if everyone had just been a follower of Augustine, who was not really concerned, uh, you know, in the third and fourth century with with um, uh, a literal reading of the book of Genesis and who warned against it, uh, then maybe uh, Darwin's book would would not have made such a splash in religious terms. And then in the United States, of course, um, uh, especially through the lens of uh, um, the famous uh, 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 you know, Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, um, this took on a different frame. It became about uh, a kind of ongoing conflict between uh, rural and urban uh, culture and uh, red and, and blue states and so forth. And so, and so the evolution debate became a kind of stand-in for uh, a much larger cultural um, uh, dispute. And, uh, and, and people kind of uh, confuse it for just being about the issues uh, of evolution and, and creationism and so forth. But it's really about much more than that. And, and I think that helps explain the particular passion that, uh, that goes into these debates. So this is a hypothetical question I realize, but how do you think contemporary debates about creation and the existence, creationism and the existence of God and things like this would change if more people were looking at the history of the tradition for proving God or reading, reading your book, for example? <laughs> well, they would probably be more boring, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's, a real, um, there's a real sport to some of these debates about the existence of God. I mean, you look at the, the debates on YouTube of William Lane Craig and, and the kind of new atheist controversies that, that arise every few years, and, and that stuff is exciting. Um, it, you know, people are drawn to it for a reason because there's a winner and a loser and it's clear and it's black and white. And I'm afraid that my approach, um, uh, I, you know, is, is might get in the way of that a little bit, might make it all a little less fun. Um, though I think it would make for, you know, a richer and more respectful and, uh, you know, more genuine, uh, debate about what's really at stake here. And, um, and, you know, and I hope that it would, um, you know, help people see, uh, you know, the, the common ground between these between these positions, and and recognize that, you know, compared to say uh, someone like Thomas Aquinas, uh, centuries and centuries ago, who was approaching these questions so so differently, uh, even the, the um, conservative Christians and the and the uh, uh, new atheists today have far more in common with each other than either of them does with the kind of intellectual attitudes of, of um, someone like Aquinas. Um, so, you know, maybe it would make some things more boring. Uh, maybe it would make some of these debates a little more tolerable. Um, you know, for me in particular, uh, and, you know, for I hope, you know, someone who was in my position as a, as a teenager then, I think it, I hope it would at least uh, uh, lend a sense of patience, uh, a sense of, of uh, tolerance for ambiguity around these religious questions and a willingness to, to step into them uh, even more deeply than we normally are and get beyond the black and white and find that, um, uh, find that the other dimensions of the debates that we're not seeing quite so much uh, may actually be more interesting and more valuable to us as people and as a society. So you mentioned things like patience and tolerance and how these can lead to a deeper appreciation of uh, the bigger questions and things like this. 
So what would your advice be for 18 to 22-year-olds who are conflicted between, you know, entertainment on the one hand and more genuine intellectual reflection on the other hand? How, besides maybe, I don't know, going to a monastery or what type, <laughs> what type of advice would you have for college students who are looking at your book in a class and watching these debates on YouTube and figuring out how to make sense of it all? Well, I think it's really important to listen and to uh, uh, meet real people. You know, don't let these debates just sit in abstraction. There's a tendency, especially in how we structure our, our classrooms today in the academy, um, to just consider things in abstraction, um, to tear these ideas, these proofs, these arguments um, out from the flesh from which they came and to uh, treat them as, as propositions on paper. And, and that's a valuable exercise, and the kind of rigor that goes with it is, is, is something that we should practice and, and uh, learn from. But there's really no substitute to going out in the world and getting to know people who's, who are um, living or, or, or dying by these arguments and, and um, uh, understanding what they really mean in people's lives. Um, uh, uh, what's at stake, really? Um, you know, what's around them? What, 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 how do these arguments shape their lives and their families and, and their economies and their politics. Um, you know, when you do that, I think there's actually some real philosophical insight to be gained as well as other kinds of insight, um, you know, into what, what, what are ideas really about for us? What is faith really about for us? Uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, for someone who's inclined as I was um, to just delve into the books and, and uh, obsess about the ideas, it can be really grounding and really significant and transformative in the best of ways to get out in the world and, and ask questions and really genuinely listen. Have you, have you spoken with people who have used your book in undergraduate or, or graduate classroom settings? Yeah, and I've even had the chance to, uh, to speak uh, and, uh, in these classes and, and uh, talk with the students and hear from them. Um, and, and it's, it's been really, uh, moving to be able to do that and, and to see them kind of pick up on different parts of it in different ways. Um, you know, one thing, for instance, that I always notice is, is, uh, they have such, you know, there are these funny little drawings in the book that I did kind of sketches that, uh, that, that I, uh, made over the course of writing it just to help myself understand these, these very abstract ideas a little better. And, and one thing that I keep, uh, finding is that the students, uh, have such different interpretations of these drawings than I would, than I had. Um, you know, for me, it's so obvious that it means this and, and, uh, that that cloud represents this. And, um, and I keep finding that among students, they have very creative and very interesting, um, and surprising ways of interpreting the little pictures, uh, which I'm always grateful to hear. And what, what led you to get interested in sketching in general, perhaps, but also what, what made you want to put your sketches in the book, just given that it's an unusual thing to do for academic publishers? Well, to me, it felt really important. And, and, and actually, the publisher, UC Press, was really excited about the drawings from the beginning. Um, to me, on the one hand, it was a way of expressing um, uh, the, that, that desire to get beyond the abstract, uh, to get to, to put these ideas back into some kind of flesh, give them a materiality, um, something beyond just the words um, and, and the abstract ideas, but something that 
um, is a little more pictorial and, and experiential and, and, um, and open to interpretation. And, and um, drawings were a way of kind of putting my hand in the book and showing that there's a, uh, you know, there's a human being here who's trying to come to terms with these ideas. Uh, and, and uh, you know, again, to me too, these, these uh, arguments were just hard to understand often for me. Um, they took time and patience um, and ex- exploration. And, and I found personally that trying to draw a picture of them was a really useful exercise in understanding them. Um, once I, uh, uh, you know, kind of turned from just making notes in, in writing to, um, to, to trying to express an idea uh, uh, in even the simplest of pictures, I found myself understanding it in a newer, uh, deeper way and, and being really grateful for that. Yeah, I think it's an effective tool, and just visually it makes the page light up in a particular way that I don't think it would if pictures weren't there, and knowing that the author drew them changes the experience as well. So also related to the presentation of the book, given that it's such a large, vast topic, how did you you narrow your focus and organize the book the way that you did? What kind of process was that like for you? Oh my gosh! Well, there was so much, and there was so much that I wish I could have <laughs> included that I that I didn't. Um, particularly um, among non kind of Abrahamic religions, but um, but I had to make certain choices, especially to to kind of keep a consistent um, thread from the ancient Greeks to um, to the present day, and and. Um, and to follow those Greek ideas where they took me um, and where they took uh, this, this legacy. Um, but there's really so much more, and there's also so much more detail uh, to, to many of the ideas that I presented, and I hope that the, that the notes will um, uh, be a way for people to delve deeper into some of these ideas. Everything that I summarize in a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs really deserves so much more, uh, so much more depth, um, but... But uh, you know, I could only uh, do what I could and fit what I could. Um, it's it's such a vast tradition, and and I'd love to see um, uh, uh, more professional philosophers and historians, um, scholars of religion, uh, 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 dive into some of these 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 proofs to explore them uh, as scholars and and to uh, give them the attention that they deserve, not just uh, as they often receive um, uh, attention for their for the ideas themselves but for the interplay between the ideas and the lives and the histories were there any what were the biggest surprises you encountered while researching the book obviously this is a topic you've been thinking about since you were younger so during the process of knowing that you were going to write a book what what just like surprised you as being weird or blew your mind or what have you? Well, w- one thing which I've alluded to a, a bit before is is just the incredible interplay between uh, cultures. You know, we tend to talk about globalization as if it's a new thing, um, but but it was just so striking when when looking closely at say the medieval Christian uh, arguments, how much they were drawing from uh, from from the books they were reading from the Muslim world, and um, and how much dialogue and interplay there was there. Um, that was really striking. You know, another thing uh, is the, the, the way in which 
the question of proof of the existence of God um, has changed over time. And it was just so striking to see this, how, how today we're so concerned with whether God exists. And yet the, um, the, the very arguments that we draw on to argue one way or another were developed by people who were far less interested in that question, who, who, who felt like the question of whether God exists was already settled and they were up to something very different. So, you know, it, it really felt like, in a sense, the way the, the um, debate is presented to us today is a lie. Um, uh, it, now, it, it, it's, I wouldn't quite say that in such a judgmental way, because um, it is the way it is for particular reasons. Um, but, but I think we're, we're, um, uh, we don't really do justice uh, to the, this set of questions um, when we look at it just in the frame that it appears in today. <laughs> right. And so this idea of intercultural exchange, you you touch on this throughout the book, but you also give a contrasting viewpoint, at least in part, by talking about the metaphor of an island, or even looking at Kant and thinking about how he contrasts with someone like Hegel. So could you say something about the metaphor of the island and how that relates to your project and how it shows up in the story of Hayab and Yaksan? Well, in one of the chapters, uh, the framing image is that of the island. And I get that from this uh, book by, uh, uh, by Ibn Tufail, a, a medieval uh, Muslim uh, living in Spain, uh, called Hay Ibn Yaksan. And it's the story of a, of a man who is spontaneously generated on an island in the Indian Ocean and over the course of his life uh, develops uh, a, a vast kind of argument about the existence of God, uh, among other things. And to me, this, this image was really representative of um, so much in this tradition of proof, uh, that, that, it's, that it's something, it, it, it's, it's an effort to um, bring something that's very social uh, that is religion and faith and belief um, into one's individual possession and and to give the impression through the the uh, completeness of one's argument that that one has wrapped one's individual mind around this uh, the, this incredibly transcendent notion of of God um, and and that's a kind of paradox um, and it's a it's a kind of um, challenge built into into the idea of proof you know. Um, the, the sociologist Emil Durkheim uh, had this had this notion of uh, uh, collective forces in individualized forms. Um, you know, he was uh, uh, very committed to the notion that that, that religion is a collective uh, activity, something that emerges through social experience. Um, but he recognized that sometimes it presents itself as being individual. And again, there's there's a kind of um, there's a kind of lie in that. There's a sense in which we, we like to think that we possess um, uh, 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 the, the basis of our belief uh, in our minds, or that we are all alone on, on some kind of metaphorical desert island, and we're coming to our conclusions uh, by pure reason and so forth. Uh, uh, but really, uh, and, and one sees this looking through uh, the proofs in detail and, and the worlds from which they came, uh, that it is always in some sense social. Uh, and, and that, that, um, that image of the island is both incredibly alluring, uh, 
um, but also kind of deceptive. Uh, and it's part of this story uh, as well. And, and, um, and I was always interested in trying to figure out where that came from. Uh, why is it that people, in particular men, this is really, uh, in some respects, uh, a study of masculinity, this whole, this whole project. Uh, why is it in particular that these men are so drawn uh, to that image of uh, a reasoning alone uh, in perfect solitude as if on an island? So, kind of a non-sequitur, but also not a non-sequitur. You mentioned Star Trek a few times in the book. What, what significance does Star Trek have for talking about proof for the existence of God? Well, I guess the first connection is just an autobiographical one. You know, for me, uh, uh, before I got interested in religion, I was, I was deeply and almost clinically obsessed with Star Trek. Uh, uh, you know, my early teenage years and, and I would go to conventions and dress up in costumes and, uh, uh, do all this embarrassing stuff. Um, and, and it was, it was a way in which my, uh, imagination, I think, got a lot of exercise and, um, and, 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 you know, I kind of fell in love with, uh, the possibilities of, of reason, uh, you know, in part through that experience. And, um, you know, and so I, I felt like it was uh, uh, a, a relevant part of the story, a relevant thing to bring up uh, from time to time, uh, you know, because I think the overlap between religion and science fiction in our, in our society today um, uh, is, is, so, um, is so close. And, and, and they're these two realms that though they're very anxious to, to draw borders between uh, uh, one another. Um, are often very close, and in my experience, certainly um, uh, seem to bleed into uh, into one another in, in really important ways. And even you know, I I was talking about that that book Hayab and Yaksan um, from the Middle Ages, um, one of the first philosophical novels. Uh, it really is, in many respects, a work of science fiction. There's even a, a passage at the beginning where there's a kind of spurt of pseudoscience that would. Uh, uh, fit very nicely on, on an episode of Star Trek when he's trying to explain how this man got uh, spontaneously generated on the island. Um, uh, and, and so even going back then, uh, there, there is this interesting overlap between the religious and something that now we might call science fiction. Did, did you face any challenges when you were approaching publishers or working with UC Press in terms of incorporating so much autobiographical material, especially when uh, a bit of it has to do with your personal religious convictions? Well, in my case, um, my editor was actually very um, encouraging and, 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 and asked me to put more uh, about my own experience. And I, I think a part of me would have preferred to have done just a history um, of, of these ideas um, and, and, you know, some journalism about how they're playing out now. But but I think my editor um, uh, felt that, you know, and I came to feel as well that that um, that putting my experience in there would be really important for people to connect to it um, and to and to put some flesh uh, on these ideas uh, uh, because these things are so abstract and you know it's interesting even even now when I hear from readers about it uh, some people will say. You know, I love the ideas and I love the history, but, you know, I could have done without the personal stuff. Uh, and then other people say, 
you know, the history and ideas were, were pretty hard to meet for me. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, I'm new to, to these ideas and, and, um, it was challenging, but I, 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 I was kept going by the, I, I kept going because of the personal story. I was really compelled by that. So, uh, you know, I've been glad to hear both sides of it come out, um, from readers and, and I hope that having, um, having a bit of my story in there, um, you know, will draw people in who, who, uh, wouldn't otherwise be drawn into these uh, questions about the history of philosophy and, and um, you know, these abstract proofs. So in terms of receptions of the book too, since you cast a wide net in terms of your audience, naturally on threads on Amazon and things like that, probably some of the comments, people actually haven't read the book and they see something about proof for God. And then it gets into one of those online internet debates what, and what have you. But in terms of people who actually have read the book, what, what have been some of the biggest misunderstandings you've encountered when you've gone around and talked to people? Well, um, you know, I, on one hand, uh, I've been really pleasantly surprised by how, how warmly and, and wisely people have received the book um, in reviews, um, uh, in those discussion threads on Amazon. You know, I, I've been shocked to the, uh, by the extent to which people really seem to get it. Um, and I think people uh, 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 kind of been craving some alternative to the old yes or no um, about uh, the existence of God. And maybe you felt some, some wish that there was a part of this and that in the book. But, but I still often... I, I get asked, you know, what are you really trying to do here? You know, what are you really, where do you really stand, right? What is your real position here? Um, again, trying to kind of box me into the, um, into the usual frame of the discourse that we find today. You know, um, that, you know, they want me to ultimately prove that God exists or not. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, to me, this, this is, uh, it's precisely, uh, the, the inadequacy of this question that, um, that I wrote the book uh, 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 to address. You know, it, I didn't write the book to try to step out of um, our time and place um, because I'm in it. Uh, and I felt that the, 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 the kind of shape of the debate was inadequate. And I think a lot of other people do too. Uh, and, and um, you know, I think that there are good reasons for us to move uh, beyond that and to deepen uh, how we talk about these issues. And, and um, you know, but some people uh, are continuing to insist that, that um, the only possible uh, question is, is, does God exist? And they seem to have a very clear idea of what God is and what existence means. Uh, and when, in fact, some of the greatest minds in human history uh, have uh, wrestled with and disagreed about just those questions. Yeah, and I think that that's such an important point that oftentimes people ask questions that aren't thoroughly or even very much at all re reflexive about their, their personal context and time. So I, I, I very much appreciate that refrain throughout, throughout the book. So we've taken up a bit of your time now. And so before we go, would you be willing to share some of your next projects that you're working on and if they depart from this this project or how they might relate? Sure. Well, actually, um, last year as well, UC Press published another book of mine that 
ostensibly seems to be very, very different. Uh, it's called Thank You Anarchy, and it's a, uh, an account of the Occupy movement, especially uh, Occupy Wall Street in New York City. And, um, uh, you know, that was based on work that I was doing while I was kind of wrapping up the God book, <laughs> um, as I've come to calling it. Um, but in my own mind, in my experience, uh, these two uh, projects uh, really intertwined in some interesting ways. And, and you know, in some respects, um, there's more faith <laughs> in, the, in the book about Occupy, um, you know, both explicitly religious faith. You know, I, I, there are some places where I, um, you know, engage with religious um, uh, actors and, and actually my own kind of religious participation in, in, in that movement. Um, but also the kind of political faith and the, and the ways in which people, uh, I saw so many people uh, through that movement um, risking so much uh, uh, for a kind of faith, uh, a faith in the possibility of a better world. And, and this really, to me, underscored uh, a lot of uh, 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 what I learned in doing the book about proof that, 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 that people's faith is built on so much more than, that, than the intellectual alone. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and that faith, uh, is, is, is very much a, something that must be carried out and enacted. Uh, and, and so to me, the two books together, um, you know, form an interesting kind of dialogue. Uh, and I've been, uh, grateful to be able to, uh, uh see that play out, even though, uh, I wasn't expecting, uh, expecting them to come out at the same time, almost to, to, um, kind of be in dialogue and, uh, with each other in these ways. So in addition to these books that you have published, do you have any future book projects that you're either working on or planning for the future? Well, I'm starting to get interested in uh, a project about uh, some of the new developments in technology these days, and in particular, the ways that technology is changing how we think about the comments, what we share, what's accessible to everybody in, in society. And, and to me, this is um, drawing on, on the work of both books I've done so far. One, on the one hand, um, on the political interests of the, of the Occupy book uh, and the Occupy movement. Uh, and on the other hand, um, the, the engagement with religious traditions in God and Proof. And I think these traditions have a lot to offer right now uh, in how we think about um, uh, what we share and what our priorities are as a society. So um, I'm hoping that uh, in the future uh, I'll be uh, further synthesizing uh, the, the, these two projects that I've done so far and, and uh, finding kind of unexpected uses for them. Well, great. That sounds very exciting. And normally we end these interviews uh, on that note with author talking about future projects. But if I may, I'd like to... I'd like to solicit your comments about something you say on, very early on in your book that talks about how you got interested in the project and just about learning and knowledge in general and really stood out to me. So the, the passage is, philosophy, when it takes hold of a teenager, means taking oneself very seriously on matters of gross incompetence. There are no minor leagues, no lower gears. One goes straight from zero to everything in no time. And the most alluring stuff is exactly the most fundamental and the most lofty, just when one is least prepared to take away any of it with a grain of salt. Even so, and consequently, there's no better time than adolescence to fall in love with philosophy or to develop an intellectual dependency on it. 
Neither love nor addiction occurs when one is being sensible. They thrive on heroic feats of self-delusion and clever rationalization, and so does philosophy. And so that quote just made me think about how how somebody could get interested in such big questions and how daunting it, it all can be. Do you have any, any thoughts you'd be willing to share as we conclude? Well, I, you know, I think uh, there's a way in which it's absurd for, you know, uh, uh, fairly educated teenagers to venture into these questions. But I also think it's so important. You know, I, I think there's a sense in which um, the, the curious and uh, voracious teenager really holds us to account in really important ways. Um, you know, adults are tolerant of a lot of bullshit. Uh, <laughs> and I think teenagers are much less so. Uh, and, and if you can't explain something straight up, uh, if it doesn't really make sense to somebody who is grappling with the, the madness of adolescence uh, and trying to do so in a rigorous way, um, then, you know, there might be uh, some extent to which, you know, the, the, uh, uh, what you're trying to hawk there uh, uh, isn't really real. Uh, so, so I think we really have to... Um, be grateful for the, the tough questions that, that teenagers ask, and, and we need to encourage them. I think they're, they're really important to all of us. Well, great. Thank you so much, Nathan, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you about your book. Thank you. This has been really fun. That was my conversation with Nathan Schneider, freelance journalist and scholar, about his wonderful new book, God in Proof, the story of a search from the ancients to the internet, published by the University of California Press in 2013. Thanks for listening.